0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're going to continue this morning our study of this Upper Room Discourse. As we've said over and over, this discourse covers the last probably 18 hours of our Lord's earthly life. We're looking at uh, this discourse is in chapter 13 through 17, and it gives us teaching of Yeshua that you're not going to find any place else, and it's the teaching He gave to His disciples right before His execution. We're currently looking at chapter 15 and going over verses 1 through 17, which deal with the metaphor of the vine and the branches. Now the theme of this section is clearly fruit bearing. The word fruit occurs eight times in these 17 verses. It only occurs two other times in this Gospel. Now, it's my understanding that this passage on fruit bearing deals with the subject of discipleship. Fruit bearing is a mark of discipleship. Look at verse 8. He says, "...by this..." My Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be My disciples. So, by bearing much fruit, we give evidence to being the disciples of the Lord. Now, disciples is from the Greek word mathetes. And it literally means a learner or a follower. I have made the distinction Between a Christian and a disciple, I think there's a difference. And I think this text bears that out. A disciple remains a disciple as long as he or she continues to follow the instruction of their teacher. When a person stops following, they cease to be a disciple. Because a disciple, that's what it means. A follower. A learner. Alright, the Lord says in verse 3, Talking to His disciples, Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Now, by this word clean, he's meaning they're believers. They have been cleansed. If you go back to chapter 13, which we're not going to do. We've done it plenty of times before. Chapter 13, verses 10 and 11, we see that the word clean here refers to salvation. He tells them back there, you're clean, but not all of you. Why not all? Well, because Judas was still there. Got rid of Judas. They're all clean, all right? I don't really see any other way to take this verse than Yeshua telling those who's speaking to that they're saved. So Yeshua then tells those who are clean, those who have believed, those who are his children, he says, Abide in me. So he is commanding believers to abide in him. So those who are believers, those who have eternal life, which they can never lose, are told to abide in Christ. There's clearly a distinction between believing and abiding because they are believing. Now he says to those believing, abide in me. But so many people see this as nothing different than just being a Christian. But he's telling people who are Christians to do something. Now the verb abide is the Greek. The Greek is mano. In John's Gospel, this term is used of dwelling in a certain place, or or staying somewhere as one's dwelling place. So I think we could say that for Lazarus, Manoah has the idea of to make one's home. To abide in Christ is to make your home in Him. Abiding in Him, people, is not automatic. See, it's not just something that happens because they're commanded to do it. something we're commanded to do. If you're commanded to do it, obviously it doesn't just automatically happen. You have to put some effort in. There's things you have to do to do that. Now in verse 4, he says, abide in me and I in you. And then in verse 7, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. So in verse 7, the phrase, my words abide in you, is substituted for the phrase in verse 4, I in you. So we could say that for Christ to abide in us is for His Word to abide in us. And people, that's why it's so important for us to spend time in the Word of God. Christ can't abide in us if the Word is not abiding in us. It's just not going to happen. You have to spend time in the Word of God. Now in verse 9, Yeshua says, Abide in My love. So how do we do that? How do we abide in His love? Well, He makes it clear We abide in His love when we keep His commandments. Verse 10, if you keep My commandments. Obedience, as we said earlier, that's not a dirty word, people. We act like, well, if you're under grace, you can't obey anything. No, we are to obey. If you keep My commandments, you will abide in My love. Just as I have kept My Father's commandments and abide in His love. Now, if you keep My commandments is a third-class conditional sentence, which means potential action. Maybe you will and maybe you won't. Maybe you won't keep my commandments. Now remember, he's talking to believers. Now there's also this idea that if you're a believer, you're just going to automatically obey and do everything right. Well, not according to this. He says, maybe you will and maybe you won't obey. If you do, then you'll abide in my love. Remember, Yeshua is addressing His own disciples who are clean, who are believers. So those who are clean, those who are believers, may or may not keep His commandments. And if they don't keep His commandments, they will not abide in Him or in His love. It's not assumed that all believers are going to abide. It's not assumed at all. So there must be some distinction between believing and abiding. Because you abide by keeping the commandments. You don't believe by keeping the commandments. You believe as an act of grace that God gives you faith. He says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. So why was Yeshua saying these things to the disciples? He was saying it so that His joy would be in them and that their joy would be full. These things is everything He's just said in the previous ten verses. The truth of abiding in Christ. Keeping His commandments. Believers, to abide in Christ is to have joy. To live in obedience to the Lord's commands is to have joy. Joy doesn't come from doing your own thing. It comes from abiding in Christ. Real joy, real peace comes from that relationship. Alright, now we're going to start with verse 12 and that was just all review. And deal with this last section here. I really hate that we had to break this up so many times because it's one section. But I think, you know, I know you didn't want to sit here for four hours so I had to break it up. Alright? This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So Yeshua here is summarizing His teaching with the command to love one another. And here we see the reference to the commandments plural in verse 10. You know, he said these commandments in verse 10. And now he reduces to the singular commandment, My commandment. The disciples are to love one another. This is a present active imperative showing that love is to be the dominating constant activity in our relationships. Yeshua is repeating His command found in John 1334 and he's going to repeat it again in verse 17, three times in this discourse, he tells them to love one another. This is not a suggestion, people. Okay? This is a commandment. You cannot live out the Christian life. You cannot abide in Christ. You cannot be a disciple of Christ without a commitment to loving other people. We've got to see that. We've got to understand that. The the dominance of love in the Christian life. That's what we're called to do. It's the most love, the most significant attribute that we can offer to the world. We need to love one another. To not be a loving person is not some small character flaw. It's to break the greatest commandment. It's not to love God. So we need to understand that love Is a requirement. Now, Lazarus uses the word love seven times in this context. You know, for Hebrews, the numbers are very significant. Maybe he's drawing, trying to draw attention to the the significance of seven as the number of fullness, the number of completion, the number of spiritual perfection. We're called to love. Now, notice what Christ. Notice that Christ says we are to love as I have loved you. Now, in less than 18 hours, He's going to show them the depth of His love by making the supreme sacrifice and dying for them. After that, they'd not only have His command to obey, they'd have it as example to follow. The love that they or we are to have for one another is to be so great that it includes a self-sacrificial willingness to die for one another if necessary. That's what He's talking about here. Leon Morris gives us a good example of Christian love when he writes this. He says, Love in the Christian sense is not sentimentality. Man, we got to get that. Love is not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It is not a gushing emotional indulgence of some loved one. Love is what we see in the cross. It is what Christ showed when He laid down His perfect life for sinners. It's important to bear in mind that it is love for sinners. Jesus does not mean the kind of love that we so commonly have in mind when we use the term. A love for someone whom we find supremely attractive. And then this is his, in quotes here, Sinners are not attractive to a holy God. Okay? Nor is it a love for those bound to us by natural ties, such as family members. God is not bound by natural ties to sinful people. Nor is it the love of friendship, a love drawn from us by those who we find congenial. God does not find sin or those who practice it congenial. A love for sinners means a love that proceeds from the fact that God is love. He loves because it is His nature to love. So our love for others should be a reflection. You know, He says, Love one another as I have loved you. So our love should be a reflection of that sacrificial love that took Christ to the cross. A love that doesn't count the cost. A love that reached out to the undeserving. If you want to love as Yeshua loved, then you have to actively meet the needs of those who cannot do anything for you in return. Christian love doesn't have a stopping point. It goes to the extent of sacrificially dying for others. Notice what Paul wrote to the believers at Ephesus. Therefore, be imitators of God. That's easy, right? We are image bearers, people. We are to bear the image of God. We are to imitate God. When people look at us, they're supposed to see God. So, when you're doing something, you know, well, this is probably not a good thing as a Christian to do. Are you imitating God? Are you being an image bearer? Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself. There's the again, you know, this is what Yeshua said, this is what Paul says walk in love as Christ loved. Sacrificial love means you're willing to be inconvenienced in order to demonstrate our love to others. You know, love doesn't always fit into our schedule or routine. Sometimes, hang on to this, sometimes you're going to have to go outside of your comfort zone to love. Two of the men, <laughs> I, I think this is kind of comical, you know, he's, he's commanding these disciples to love, and we know that two of the men he were talking to there was, was Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon the Zealot, right? Now think about that. These guys are there, and he's saying, you guys got to really love each other. The Zealots were a radical political party whose main objective was getting Rome out of the Holy Land, out of Jerusalem. Get Rome out of here. They viewed tax collectors as despicable traitors who had sold their souls to Rome. You can understand that? The tax collectors were working for Rome, and the tax collectors also took advantage of their fellow Jews by, you know, Jacking up the taxes all they wanted to so they could pocket it. So he's telling these two guys in the midst there, you guys who hate each other, you gotta love each other. So I don't care what differences we may have with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're called to love them. That's our calling. You know, and in, in the early church, they saw the love of these Christians and they marveled. And I think in our day, not so much. Okay? Now, commenting on this verse, one teacher states this, a nature that has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, whose fruit is love, cannot help but demonstrate genuine love. What do you think about that? (laughs) You can't help but demonstrate love, right? Do you find that in your life? I just can't help but love everybody around me. Um, that's hmm. well. What do they mean by So yeah, I mean maybe we haven't been regenerated for having a problem. Okay, he is basically saying if you're saved, you will love. So is love automatic? It's not for me. Why are we commanded to love? If we can't help but love, isn't that kind of dumb? That's like me commanding you to breathe. You need to breathe, people. Uh, yeah, we know that. You kind of just do. I could do that in my sleep, right? It's not that hard. All right. Love is not automatic. Selfishness is. Okay, I'm talking for myself. I don't know about you, people, but for me, that's what's automatic. Selfishness. I have to think and work to go the other direction. And that's why the Lord commands them to love one another. It's something you got to put some effort into. It's something you got to consciously think about. You know, when you're abiding in Christ, yes, this is what happens. It's important. It's vital. And he says, Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now in the context, this refers primarily to Yeshua's own self-sacrificial death on the cross. He tells them, you know, I want you to love one another, and then there is no greater love than someone die, and I'm, that's what I'm going to do for you. The laying down of Yeshua's life is spoken of as a command to the, by the Father. He says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So in obedience to the Father, He's laying down His life. Because He loved the Father, He obeyed the Father even to the point of death. Now later in His epistles, Lazarus writes this, By this we know love. How do we know love? Someone feels, I just get this warm, tingly feeling. No, He says that He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. <laughs> you see, this theme is just all over the place, okay? We ought to lay down our but if someone, now you say, well, I'd be willing to die if I had to. For someone, I certainly would. Okay, well, let's not stop there. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You say, Well, now it's getting. Personal, you know? I mean, i be willing to die, but to sacrifice? That's a little bit different, right? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Laying down one's life may include dying for one another, which is what Yeshua Himself is about to do for them, but it includes the same attitude of humble service that we saw in Yeshua in chapter 13 where He did one of the most lowly, menial tasks the task of a slave, and he washed their feet. Now, the word friends here is the Greek word philos, from which we get the word phileo, which means to love, to have affection. So, are we to just love our friends? I mean, people say, well, that's what he says here in this context. That's all we have to do is love our friends. Well, in this context, he's talking to his disciples about their need to love one another. In different contexts, we find him telling us we have to love even our enemies. Okay? So if you have trouble loving your friends, it steps it up a notch or two. Okay? Look at Matthew 8, I mean, Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You have heard that it's been said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, the scripture never says anything about hating your enemy, so they didn't hear it from the the Bible. All right? But I say to you, love your enemies. Like, what? Come on, pray for those who persecute you. Why? So you will be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain to the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's our calling as Christians. Only Christians who are abiding in Christ can love like this. People, this is supernatural. All right. so when the Lord calls us to do this, you just can't do this in your own strength. It is supernatural. You can only live like this as you abide in Christ, as you live in dependence on His power and grace. He says, you're my friends... If you do what I command you. This verse really explains 15.10. In 15.10, he says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So this is explaining that in another way. He says, If you keep my commandments, you're my friends. So if you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you're my friends. My friends abide in my love. Now, you know, friend is another term that's very relative, like abiding or fellowship. There's different levels of abiding, there's different levels of fellowship. There's different levels of friends. A person could be an intimate friend, they could be a, a close friend, they could be a casual friend, or they could be a Facebook friend, which means you might not even know them. I don't know how they call that friends, you know? And just so you know, I don't never accept a friend request if I don't know the person because I don't know how you can be my friend if I don't know you. If you're my friends, if you do what I command you, guess what? This is another third-class conditional sentence, which means potential action. Maybe you won't do what I command you. Maybe you will, but if you do, you're my friends. If you don't, you're not my friends, okay? It gives the condition for friendship, which is obedience. So again, these believers may or may not keep Yeshua's commandments and be His friends. But they're still believers. Because that's who He's talking to. They're not going to be unbelievers because they didn't do these things, but they might not be His friends. No longer do I call you servants. Anybody's Bible... Anybody have a Bible? You guys don't even bring a Bible. You just—it's on the screen. I'll just look at. All right. Oh, you got it all memorized. Good. Well then, uh, the word "servant" here is bad. Is a bad translation. Okay. The Greek word is doulos. Doulos means slave. Now you know why they made it servants. It's kinder, gentler. Okay. It's more politically correct. All right. But there's a difference between a servant and a slave. You you do understand that, right? Okay, servant can say, no thanks, I'm not interested in doing that. slave doesn't do that. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father, I've made known to you. Even though Yeshua here elevates His disciples from being slaves to being friends, I think it's important to understand that the master-slave relationship is not eradicated. We are still slaves. Just a few sentences later, Yeshua implies that He is the Master and they are the slaves. Look what He says in 15.20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. And again, that word servant is bad translation. It's slave. A slave is not greater than his master. Paul, James, Peter, they all call themselves slaves of Yeshua. And there's a sense in which every Christian may legitimately be thought of as a slave. This is what Yeshua taught His disciples to call themselves in Luke 17. He says, so you too, when you do all the things which you're commanded as Christians, you're doing everything. I'm doing all the Lord asked me to do. Say this, we're unworthy slaves. Hey, that says slaves. How come? Because it's a New American Standard. One of the few translations that actually translates that as slaves. Say, we're unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. The word here is doulos. Doulos meant slave in classical Greek. It was a word used to describe slaves who had no rights. Their masters owned them. And their only justification for being allowed to live was that they fulfilled the wishes of their owners. Doulos has normally been seen as a reference to a bond slave. Someone without legal standing or personal claims. Someone owned by another. Since that is what doulos was in the Greco-Roman society. And most Bible students would see this meaning and would say, a Christian has no rights. They're a slave, they're a doulos, and as a doulos they have no rights. That is true, but the term doulos has at least two meanings in the Hebrew Scriptures. So let me share the other one to... Kind of help you see this in a little different light. In the Septuagint, it was used to translate the word eved, which was slave. An examination of the Hebrew text of the Tanakh, particularly that of Isaiah, shows that eved was a title for pious men. It was used of Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, and the servant of Yahweh. The essential difference between the Hebrew slave who was sold into the possession of another And the slave of Yahweh is not merely the status of the owner. The essential difference is one of covenant. In the Septuagint, Dulos described a relationship within the covenant that Yahweh had made with Israel. This is also the case in the New Testament where the context normally shows it to describe a relationship within the new covenant which Yahweh has established through Christ. The covenant use does not speak of someone who has no rights. It speaks of someone who is showered with honor and privilege as a result of being a slave of the living Yahweh. See, the significance here is who we're a slave to. Okay? Yahweh is the greatest slave owner in the world. All right? And the Bible does not talk about slavery in a derogatory term, it just lays out guidelines. Here's how slavery should work. All right? We see this use in uh, Isaiah 42:1. Behold, my servant, that's slave. Amen. Whom I hold, my chosen, whom my soul delights. So this is a slave. The status of slave conferred on the church and her members gave them the highest honor. She's called to serve the living God. Now following the Exodus type, Israel was Pharaoh's slave, but through her redemption, she became Yahweh's slave. The same is true of believers. By faith, we become Yeshua's slaves. Your slavery to Christ results in a right standing with Yahweh. You are in union with Him who satisfied eternal justice on your behalf. And because you're His slave, you are made right with God and brought into the fellowship. Christ accomplished all that was necessary to declare us righteous before God. He says, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing but I've called you friends. Why? Because I'm letting you know everything ahead of time. All right. He calls them friends because now He's going to explain things to them. See, slaves don't get that right. A friend is told what the Master is doing. One of the differences between friends and slaves is the degree of intimacy they share with their Master. Yahweh called Abraham my friend in Isaiah 40, 1, eight. And when he's about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, because Abraham was his friend, he says, I guess I should let Abraham know what I'm doing. Now, to slaves, you don't have to let a slave know what you're doing. But to a friend, you let him know. So in Genesis 18, 17, Yahweh said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? We see the same kind of intimacy with Moses. Abraham and Moses are both called the friend of God. In both cases, God revealed things to his friends that he doesn't reveal to others. And in both cases, on the basis of what God did reveal to his friends, these friends petitioned God on behalf of others, and the petition was granted. And we're going to see in our text that prayer is also connected with this idea of being friends and God, you know, revealing truths throughout the Gospels. We see very clearly that the disciples did not understand what Yeshua came to do. They were absolutely clueless. They just felt like, he's here, he's the Messiah, he's going to overthrow Rome, we're going to have a set up a kingdom, it's all going to be great. They misunderstood, they misapplied just about everything he taught them, right? But after his death and resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit, things changed. And now all of a sudden, they knew their mission. They understood what they were supposed to do. They understood what this was all about. And these men went on to write the New Testament. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they have passed on to us what they've learned. And so from the time of Pentecost onward, any saint can be an informed friend of the Lord, knowing what he's doing and why through the Word of God. He's revealed to us. We know. You know, people are sitting around waiting for Him to come back. He's revealed to us. We know. He did that. Been there, done that. Yeshua proved to His disciples that they were His friends as well as His slaves, but He pointed out that a master shares His plans with His friends, but not with His slaves. He told them what was coming, and thereby was treating them as His friends. And I think that Christians today can can be Too casual, though, about this whole idea of friendship with Yeshua. He's not our homeboy. He's not our buddy. You know, I really cringe when I hear people talk about God. They just get in this attitude like, listen, He's Lord. On Yeshua being our friend, D.A. Carson writes this. Although Abraham and Moses are called friends of God, God is never called their friend. Although Jesus can refer to Lazarus as his friend, Jesus is not called the friend of Lazarus. Neither God nor Jesus is ever referred to in Scripture as the friend of anyone. And again, I think people, you know, in our day of, I mean, there is no protocol, there is no formal anything, we've just you know, become society if anything goes. I think we have to realize that we're still slaves. He's still a master. He is our Lord. He's our Creator. And there needs to be some sort of reverence there, you know? I mean, I think we should... Well, I'll go on. But I, I just think, you know, He's God and we're not. And that's a big distinction, okay? Now people always say, why? Why? And I say, because He's God and you're not. When you get to be God, then you can do what you want. But you're not going to get to be God because that position is already taken. He is God. So Yeshua here calls the disciples his friends. But he's still their Lord, and they're still his slaves. And that's important, I think, for us to understand. Look at 1 Corinthians. What Paul Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. Like a slave bought out of the slave market, God came and purchased us. We were bought with the price of His life. And the difference between a friend and a slave is not at the point of obedience. Because both have to obey. But the difference is a master doesn't have to explain why to his slave, but he does to his friends. And the whole last discourse, especially the, the following section, Yeshua explains why to his disciples. He's treating him as friends and he's explaining what's going to happen, what they're going to deal with. Because there is friends, there's an intimacy there. There is friends because they obey. There is friends because they abide. There is friends because they keep his commandments. He says in John 15 16, You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He'll give it to you. So Yeshua looks at His disciples and says, You didn't choose me. I chose you. Now many will say here that Yeshua's primary reference here is to choosing these men as disciples, choosing these men for a certain task, not their election, to salvation. Even Calvin says that, okay? Maybe so. Maybe so. But there is no way this truth can be limited. You just can't limit it. This is a truth that is universal in the spirit world. God chooses. It's true of all Christians, not just these disciples. The Scriptures are abundantly clear that God both chooses for salvation and He sovereignly determines our spiritual abilities, our station in life, everything that happens, He's sovereign over. So is He talking here just about what He's calling them to do? Maybe, but again, He chose them to salvation. They didn't choose Him. He chose them to discipleship. They didn't choose Him. Now in the culture of the first century, in the culture of Rabbi and Talmudim, disciples. The Rabbi did not choose disciples. A disciple would go out and he would look for a Rabbi and he would approach this Rabbi with this formal, lengthy thing, basically saying, Rabbi, you think I can be like you? Because that's the whole thing. That's the whole idea of a disciple and a Rabbi. I want to be like you, Rabbi. Do you think I can do it? And if if the Rabbi thought... He could be like him, then he would choose him as a disciple. You take him on as a disciple, but the Lord's saying, "In this case, I chose you. I'm doing all the choosing here." Okay, you didn't choose me. That's negative. You guys didn't do it. The positive, I chose you. The word for choose here, eklego, means simply to pick or choose for oneself. Now, the Greek translators of the Tanakh, the Septuagint used it over 90 times to refer to God choosing someone or some people for His own purpose and for His own glory. You know, this word is not complicated. It means precisely what it says. Yeshua is quite emphatic in the way the Greek text reads, literally using a double I to emphasize that Yeshua is the one doing the choosing, not the disciples. This is... The doctrine of election. It's the doctrine of divine calling, effectual calling. We've seen this all through this Gospel. This is a hated doctrine today. The fact that God chooses really bothers. Who does He think He is? I'll tell you who He thinks He is. He thinks He's God. And so He gets to do what He wants to do. And again, this is so predominant in Scriptures, you have to willfully try to fight against it okay, to get around it. John 6. You know, if you read John 6 and you're still an Arminian, I don't know what you're doing wrong. Okay? This is a strong passage. John 6, 36. But I said to you, you have seen Me, and yet you don't believe. You just, you don't believe. All that the Father gives Me will come to Me. Whoever comes to Me, I will never cast out. Now, two verses earlier, Yeshua had connected coming to Him and believing in Him. So those are the same things. All right, Those who come are believing. Those who believe are coming. So since the crowd does not believe in Him, they don't come to Him. And it's this unbelief which Yeshua is addressing in this verse. You don't believe. And the reason you don't believe is because all the Father gives me will believe. And you don't believe because the Father hasn't given you to me. Why does anyone come to believe in Yeshua? It's only because they were given by the Father to the Son. This is taught. See, the elect of God are a love gift that God the Father gives to the Son for His sacrifice. Here's your gift. It's a certain people. Now, according to Arminianism, Christ could die on the cross and nobody come. Because no one chooses to. So guess what? Christ died in vain. But according to the Bible, Christ died for His people and they, the, the elect are a love gift from the Father to the Son. So the reason that anybody does not believe, and Christ is talking to unbelievers here. And He's telling them the reason you don't believe, you haven't been given. You haven't been given by the Father. Because all the Father gives me comes. See, the ability to believe on Yeshua requires divine enablement. It is only those whom the Father enables to believe that come. These are all the people whom the Father gives to the Son as gifts. They come. Yeshua viewed the ultimate cause of faith as God's electing grace, not man's choice. You've got to be given. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Now the order here is critical, people. Yeshua does not say that all who come to Him will be given to Him by the Father. We don't determine by our response who will be the Father's gift to the Son. Rather, our response is determined by prior election of God. The word gives is a word of destiny, divine sovereign. All that the Father gives, come. Look at this verse. This to me is should be the end of Arminianism okay really should be because I I I guess I need to talk to some Arminians about this and see how they deal with this John 6 43 and 44 Yeshua answered them do not grumble among yourselves no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day don't grumble you can't come unless you're drawn Who's he talking to here? He's talking to unbelieving Jews. They're grumbling because the stuff he says is hard and they're not getting it. And he's saying, don't worry. The reason you don't get it, you're not called. Did you ever learn this method in evangelism training? You ever hear a course like this? You ever been taught, when witnessing to the lost, tell them you got no ability to come to God unless He draws you? No. God loves you. It has a wonderful plan for your life. You know, and we just go over these four steps and do this, this, and this, and you're in. No. This is not how Christ did evangelism. In this chapter, John 6, he does everything he can to drive these people away. It's backwards today. We do everything we can to get them in under any pretense, you know. You water down the gospel so you get people to come. Christ did the opposite. He chased them away. They don't teach this in evangelism classes. They just don't. But this is Yeshua's method. You can't come unless you're drawn. No one can come. Not Jew, not Gentile. Nobody has the ability to come to Him. He says unless. This is a, there's a necessary condition. The necessary condition for someone coming to Him was God giving them to him. What does God give them? He gives them ability. Simply put, God gives man the ability to come to Christ. Man on his own does not have that ability. He just can't do it. And the Greek word translator here, draws. This really should end it all. Helkuo. It's used eight times in the New Testament. I would encourage you to look up every time it's used. And see how it's used. Because el cuo means to draw by irresistible superiority. Hmm. That doesn't sound very Arminian. Doesn't sound like God's being a gentleman here, they would say. He's dragging people. That's literally what it means. To drag. Dragging. It's not inviting. It's not wooing. I don't know what wooing means anyway. I don't know how you woo someone. But but it's this is... To draw by irresistible superiority. He says, Peter grabbed his sword and held Kuo. He didn't say, Sword, I'd like you to come out, but it's your free will. I'm not going to force you to do anything. No, he just grabbed it and drew it. Now, let me ask you this Why does God have to drag men to Himself? They do hate Him. Why can't men come to Christ unless they're drawn? Why can't they come? They're dead. This is so important. Ephesians two one, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. Verse five. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with God. Made us. We were dead, and God made us alive. Now Paul is using an analogy here of death. You got that right. Dead. We know dead. When Paul says they were dead, you know what he means? Dead. I know that's heavy, right? But that's what he's saying here. Now, their spiritual condition is analogous to being physically dead. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about their spiritual condition. So they're dead. To be dead is to be lifeless. To be dead is to be unable to help yourself, right? That's why he's using this analogy. It it helps us really clearly see what's going on. To be dead is to be absolutely powerless. I can't do anything. To be dead is to be beyond hope, apart from the supernatural. Right? And we've seen dead people come to life. We saw that happen with Lazarus, because God can do whatever He wants to do. And it's supernatural. Physical death is the inability to respond no matter what the stimulus is. It means Physical death means you can't react. You've been to enough funerals, and so have I, to know what physical death is. And it doesn't matter the st- what stimulus you apply to a dead corpse, they don't feel conviction, they don't get upset, they don't you know, feel anything because they're dead. That's the analogy. Again, he's talking about the spiritual life of this person is compared to a dead person. It's the inability to respond to things of the Spirit. Paul put it this way, 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person. Natural there is the Greek word soukakos. It's only used one other time. It's used in Jude and it means without the Spirit. So the person without the Spirit, he's just a natural man, just a regular old guy, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? They're folly to Him. And look, He is not able to understand them. Why? Because they're spiritually discerning because He's dead. And you can't talk to dead people. They don't respond, they don't reason, they don't think. So the natural man, the man without the Spirit, is spiritually dead. The very picture of being dead and the need for God to impart new life strongly implies the lack of ability on our part to do anything to affect our own spiritual life. That's so important when you understand dead. Dead is, you don't do, you don't respond, you don't hear, you don't act, you don't, you're dead. Now, notice what Paul is not saying. He's not saying you are handicapped. He's not saying you're sick. You're not feeling too well. He didn't say that you're misguided by your social surroundings. He said, dead. And not like on Princess Bride, mostly dead is somewhat alive. Okay? We're not talking about mostly dead. We're talking about dead, dead. Okay? Only on that show would you have someone who's mostly dead. All right? It's dead. They're without any spiritual life at all. Now, those who don't like this truth of God's absolute sovereignty and salvation try to come up with ways around it. And they tend to make up straw man arguments, like my buddy Michael Heiser did in the Naked Bible podcast. He does a podcast, I listen to it every week. Great information. The guy is a scholar par excellence. I mean, he puts out so much great material. But listen, when he's wrong, he's wrong, okay? And a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to his podcast, number 208, and he was doing a question and answer, and the question had something to do with spiritual life, and so Heiser went off on this thing, and I was sitting there in shock. I was in my car, and I was having you know, seizures, and I'm just reacting violently because I wanted to get home so I could get to the transcript of what he was saying, so I could read it, so I could say, did he really just say that? Here's what Heiser says. He says, Calvinists, of course, make spiritual deadness about the inability to believe. Ah, uh, Yeah, that's what I do. I just did that, right? Based on the idea that dead people can't do anything. So far, I'm, I'm with them, right? They're dead. But that presses the focal point of the metaphor, a dead body, into an unnecessary service. Really? How do I press that? Dead is dead. Okay? That's the metaphor. Dead. An unnecessary service. That is, it takes all the aspects of the metaphor and then loads them into the discussion. That's an intentional but unnecessary use of the metaphor. So I have a bone to pick with Calvinists here. The spiritual death topic ultimately hinges on how one defines death. I would agree with that. For Calvinists, death is is the absence of conscious life. What? What? I don't know a Calvinist who believes that. The absence of conscious life? Consciousness, just in case you don't know, is being aware of your environment. I'm conscious, I'm aware unregenerate people are very aware of their environment, their body. They're aware of all kinds of things. You know what they're not aware of? Spiritual things. The Bible says that. They're dead. Spiritual dead men, they're aware of their environment. Hey, I love it. He says, you see what they did there? No, they didn't do anything there. You did that there. Okay? No Calvinists. This is what's called the straw man argument because no Calvinist believes this. No Calvinist says an unregenerate person is not even conscious. They have no conscious life. What? Heiser continues, in other words, if you define spiritual death based on all the elements of a dead body, no, no Calvinist defines it as all the elements. Dead body doesn't respond to anything. We're saying a person is spiritually dead. They're dead to the spiritual environment. They have no consciousness of God or spiritual things. They have consciousness of all kinds. They're very self-aware. Hugely self-aware because that's all they got is self. A dead body obviously has no conscious life. Okay, yeah, they, they don't if that's how you frame spiritual deadness, and we don't, that you're unable to believe because dead bodies don't do anything and they can't make decisions. That's true, and he's using it in the spiritual sense. But Calvinists don't define spiritual death based on all the elements. Man is spiritually dead. He can't respond to God. Heiser goes on to say, you have human beings that are no longer self-aware in a Calvinistic system. What? What? Do you, know un, do you know any unsafe people? Do you think they're self-aware? Like I said, that's all they're aware of is self. It's all about them. They're self-aware. They're focused. What Calvinistic system? I talked to a bunch of guys that are Calvinists after I listened to this because I thought, am I going nuts here? Or is this really saying what it's saying? This is a total straw man argument. Listen, he is way smarter than this. I don't get it. I don't get it. No Calvinist believes this. And if you're going to come up with an argument against Calvinism, make it biblical. Don't make it say things that Calvinists do not, never have, ever will say. This is a spiritual argument. When the Bible says man is dead, they're not talking about he is physically dead. No, because he's talking about death. You know what Yeshua said? Let the dead bury the dead. Well, how are they going to do that? He's not talking about physically dead people. Burying physically dead people. People, you got to get that, okay? Death, the metaphor is spiritual death. Wouldn't you don't press this metaphor to the point of Calvinists are saying these guys can't even do anything. Can't think, they can't reason, they can't do anything spiritually. That's what the Bible says. The natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God. All right. I had to get that off my chest. I feel better now. All right, back to our text. So all of us fall into the category of chapter 15 and verse 16. that We didn't choose God. He chose us. All who believe were chosen by God. But then he says this, And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Now the best Greek texts record that Yeshua chose them and set them apart. Tithemi is the word here for a point That they'd go and bear fruit. The verb also occurs in verse 13 where Yeshua sets apart or sets aside His life for others. The verb commonly occurs with a a personal object in context where people are being set apart for a particular ministry. So He says, I chose you and I set you apart so you'd go and you'd bear fruit. He appointed them. He's talking to the disciples to a specific task. They had a job to do as slaves. They had a mission to fulfill. The purpose for which the disciples were appointed was they'd go and bear fruit which remains. Now the idea of going here suggests the fruit is more than personal qualities. He's talking about Christian converts here. I'm setting you guys apart, so you go make converts. Their training is complete now. He's been with them for three and a half years. And soon they're going to get it when Pentecost comes and He's sending them on a mission. He is commissioning them to go and to bear fruit, to reach people with the gospel of Christ. And we talked about this. It is difficult to understand in some of this text what is for us, what is not for us. I think this commissioning here is definitely to those people who are there with Him. I'm commissioning you, although I believe we all have a commission as Christians, or to tell others about Christ. All right, but then he says this to him: "So that whatever you ask the Father in My name, He will give it you." Now the Greek here begins with hina, which is a purpose clause. These words remind the reader that the means of the fruitfulness for which they've been chosen is prayer in Yeshua's name. Now, as we've seen in other prayer promises in this discourse, these promises were given to help them with their specific mission that they're on. I don't believe that this is a promise that we can claim. You know, that whatever I ask the Father, He's going to do it for me. We've talked about this. Go back to the other earlier lesson where we talked about this, and I tried to explain this because, people, it just doesn't work like this. Now, let me give you an exception clause here, maybe. At the conference, Gennady said, in my area, prayer works. I've been thinking about that, people, because I, you know, I spent some time with the man. And he's telling me what's going on over there on the war front. He's telling me about bombs, you know, landing just meters away from him and then not exploding. He's telling me the Russians have him marked for death because of the damage he's doing, you know, to what they're trying to do, because he's encouraging the troops, he's feeding the troops, praying with the troops, he's taking them Bibles and spiritual material and leading them to Christ. He is in a war. And he is seeing God answer prayer. And I'm like, God, what's going on there and here? Well, here, we're on vacation. We're on vacation, basically, in America. Everyone in America is on vacation. They're in a war. Now, when I'm on vacation, my spiritual life is like, I'm not praying as much as I normally do because, hey, wow, this is great. I'm on vacation. No stresses, no worries, no problems. I'm on vacation. Vacation's for that. You know? And so in America, it just, and, I, and Gennady and I talked about this and he agreed with me. I said, I think America's the worst culture for Christian discipleship. He agreed. He marveled at what we have in this country. He's just like, it, it's too much. But he sees answer to prayer. And like he said, when, when his light flashed before his eyes when that bomb landed on him, he said, why am I not dying? God said, you're not going to die. Why am I not going to die? And he says, people are praying for you. So I, I think prayer is extremely important, people. And I think this, these, he is, this prayer here is connected with their mission. Our Lord is saying, I appointed you that you would go, and then to make sure you have everything you need for what I've appointed you to do, whatever you ask the Father in my name and give it. I see Gennady's in the same situation, basically. Now, this is to them and what they're accomplishing. But like I said, he's in the same situation. And I just think in this country, it's like, what are we appointed to? What's our appointment? What's our mission? We just kind of like, again, we're on vacation. We got our feet back, we're kicked up back, we're taking pictures, saying, oh, vacation, look at how beautiful it is. And everything's wonderful. We have no sense of purpose, no sense of drive, no sense of what, what we have to accomplish. In this life. He says, these things to command you so you'll love one another. How many times is he going to say this? Well, actually three times in the discourse. He commands with three times. This is the third time. You guys got to love one another. Now this brings to a close the metaphor of the vine and the branches, which is all about fruit bearing, which is all about abiding in Christ. So let me ask you, how much time do you spend in pursuit of Christ in an intimate relationship with Him? Amen. I, I don't think this abiding thing was for them. and we're, you know, we just, No, I think we are called to abide. To have this... You know, and Gennady shared with me, he's a preacher, he's got a church over there, he said, when I started going to the war front, He says, the first time I went there, I came back different. He said, I'm not the same person. He says, before, you know, I had a relationship with the Lord. I did this. I studied. I taught. I did." He goes, I came back. He says, my relationship with God is so different. It's so personal. It's so intimate. Because when you're facing death, it's like this is a different world. You know, I'm not on vacation anymore. So how much time do we spend in the pursuit You know, people over there where Gennady's from, they pray, give us this day our daily bread. Why? Because they don't have food. What American would pray that? I got a refrigerator full of stuff. I got a cupboard full of stuff. I got MasterCard and I got 20 grocery stores within walking distance. Okay? So, what do we need to pray that for? We're living in a different world, people. Now, I was thinking about this and thinking about abiding in Christ and pursuing Christ. And I think of the story of Mary and Martha from Luke chapter 10. Remember that story? The Lord comes to the house, and Martha, man, she's like, Lord's here. Let's get some food on, you know? And she's a good hostess, and she's in there, she's cooking. And Mary, her sister, is like, The Lord's here. Let me sit at his feet. And by the way, sitting at someone's feet is a picture of discipleship. That's what discipleship is. You're learning at the feet of someone. So here's these two ladies. And Martha goes to them and said, Lord, tell my sister to get her butt in the kitchen and help me out. I'm paraphrasing. Okay? <laughs> and in Luke 10.41 it says, But the Lord answered her and said, Martha, Martha. You're anxious, you're troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Man, how many of us are Martha's? We're troubled about this, we're troubled about that. He says, listen, one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. What's the good portion? Well, Mary chose to sit at the feet of Christ. She chose to abide, to sit at His feet, to enjoy Him, to enjoy her relationship with Him. That's what she chose to do. People, I think we have a problem in the American church today when we got so many Marthas trying to do certain things. We think we have to do this, we've got this program, we need this done, we need that What we need is some Marys to just sit down at the feet of Yeshua and commune with Him. And then out of that communion comes a lot of beneficial things. Well, we got people doing service that's like, really, does the church need to do that? Is the church called to do that? I really think the church's calling is to teach, that Timothy, Paul told Timothy, they're to be the pillar and the ground of the truth. We're to display and we're to uphold the truth of God. That's what the church is to do. It's not doing that today. It's entertaining. It's making You want a crowd, you've got to entertain them. You can't tell them anything hard, can't teach them because they'll go away. Okay? But people, we need some more Marys. We really do. We need to just sit at the feet of Christ and learn from Him. We need to abide in Him because there's a lot of things to be anxious about. But there's only really one thing that's necessary, and that's that communion relationship. And I think even in this environment that we live in of prosperity i think we can have an intimate relationship with christ but i think it's more difficult i really do let's pray father we thank you for this morning for your text oh lord i thank you for your patience with us lord the church today has so perverted so much of the word of god that it's almost unrecognizable Give us a heart of Bereans, Lord. Help us to search the Scripture. Help us to evaluate things that we hear. Thank you, Father, for your grace to us. Amen. All right, questions? Comments? <laughs> no, we're going to sing, I'm a friend of God. <laughs> Gary? Um, I don't know you had so many hot points today it's impossible to discuss them all now um, very good But the, the thing that you hit on I guess it was probably the most Comprehend and apply. I guess is something I've come to realize in the last couple of years is that love is not feeling good, feeling right about something, doing what you enjoy necessarily. Love is sacrifice. That's that's what it is, and that's you know God so loved the world that he gave. He gave a huge expense to himself. He gave. That's what love is. It's giving, giving self, giving. Right. Well, we are in a self-centered culture, people. It can't get much more self-centered. than it is. I mean, it's just the culture is going nuts today. Kids are eating Tide Pods, you know, for what? To get likes on Facebook, you know. It's just they don't know what bathroom to go in. Everything's upside down, you know. It's like they're so confused. It's like, what is happening here? I got a text from Bob Krushank, Jr., because I know it's a text, Bob Sr., so I know it's not you, okay? Because you told me you don't text. He takes me to task by saying, What's the matter with you, David? Didn't you see all the mentions of the term free will in John 6, 1 Corinthians 2, and Ephesians 2? No, I didn't see him, Bob. <laughs> And not, neither did anybody because they're not there. And Bob's just being facetious. He's making a joke here. There's nothing in there about free will. Um, we have a will, people. I do not. No Calvinist denies volition. We have a will. We choose. We make hundreds of choices every day. But the concept of a free will is, a, is an oxymoron. Your will, is in, You would have to make choices in an environment that has no influences on you whatsoever. And there's no environment like that. That I know of. So your will is not free, it's always influenced by something. John? Let me ask you this. <clears throat> and you've expressed this although not directly to this. If I obey this much, am I a disciple? Okay, John's got a very good question. You know, the Lord's talking in this text about obedience, and you know, if you're gonna abide in me, you gotta obey. If you want to be my friend, you got to obey. So he says, "How much? How much do we have to obey?" And again, I think abiding is relative, just as friendship is relative. And I think the more you obey, the more you abide. I really think there's a—you know—it's not like here. There's a line here, and you're the in or out. You know, I mean, we grow. We grow personally. We grow through experiences. The Lord brings stuff into our life that pushes us along the path. But the more I think we we obey. The more we abide, the closer we grow to Him. But, you know, I mean, I don't think it's a you know just you get to a point and you're in or out. All Christians are called to do this. We're called to keep His commandments. But the focus here, people, is love. So, I don't think the church is doing such a great job on that, you know. I mean, when well, we're talking about biblical love, Okay, i got a question here. A good question. Hello, David. Answer, why should we pray if it's God who draws men to Himself and we pray for that person's salvation? Okay, good question. So why pray if God's the one who does this? Okay, let me answer that question this way. Why pray if it's up to the person and not God? Who are you praying to? You're praying to God. God say that. Why do we pray that way? God stand back and maybe you should pray to that person. I mean, we pray for God to save people. Why? Because we know He saves people. You know? It's up to Him. So we pray for salvation. But yes, it's it's up to God. He's the one who chooses. We could say why pray about a lot of things if God's sovereign. Here's because I'm gonna tell you why pray. Okay, this is this is profound, so you gotta write this down, all right? We pray because the Sovereign Lord told us to pray. That's good enough for me. Do I understand everything about prayer? No. Are there times I cry out to God in prayer? Yes. Are there times I think, what's the point of it? Yes. But I know we pray, and I see answers to prayer in the Bible. I see men pray. And again, I I told you my definition of prayer. Prayer is a declaration of dependency. Whenever I ask God for something, I'm saying, I need you. That's a good place to be in. That's a good place to be in. Because if you're not in that place, guess what? You're proud. I don't need you. So prayer is a declaration of dependence. I need you, God, in every situation. And the more needy you are, I think the more answer you're going to see. And that's that's the case with Gennady. He's in a situation where, God, if you don't do something, a lot of people die. And he's seeing God work in that situation. Seeing Him work.